the difference is. One second, one second, because we just heard for the president. Anna, Anna, wait. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to be mean. Yeah, I respectfully disagree. With I would respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. You're, you're changing all life, but you're not answering my question. You're describing. Why do you want? Are you stupid? I will not yield to the government. What's the deal with politics? Being agreeable, saying and doing things in a pleasant way. That's easy enough. Happening at the Chris, we're right talking now. about the it is an abomination. Right it is an abomination. It's an abomination. I don't think you should have to hate to oppose uh, somebody, but mm -hmm. it's easier. You cut that out now, or you'll go home in an ambulance. Yeah, that seems mildly inappropriate for a political discussion. So I have a, a few questions uh, to get you thinking a little bit, and uh, don't answer immediately in your head when I ask these questions, because I want you to sit uh, with these questions uh, for just a moment, but here's the first one. Have you ever been frustrated with Jesus? Have you ever been frustrated with Jesus because of what he said or what he didn't say? Have you gotten frustrated with Jesus because it seemed as though he did not want to be absolutely clear about absolutely everything and it was just a little bit frustrating? Uh, have you ever been confused by Jesus because at times it seemed as though Jesus uh, was unpredictable and at times it just seemed as though Jesus was inconsistent? Has Jesus ever made you uncomfortable because of what he did or by what he didn't do? And here's the really important one. Has Jesus always, in your mind, been on your side of every argument? Is Jesus always on your side as far as it relates to your point of view politically, on the way that you view the world socially? Does Jesus share your idea of economics? Does Jesus share your idea about race? Does Jesus share your ideas about men and about women? Do you always think of Jesus as being on your side? If Jesus has never frustrated you, if Jesus has never confused you, if Jesus has never made you feel uncomfortable, if you think that Jesus always shares your opinion and your point of view, I would like to say to you and I would like to say to me that if we feel that way, then I wonder if we really truly understand the Jesus that is actually presented to us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If we think that Jesus always agrees with us, and if we think he always lands on our sides of things, and if he's never frustrating, uncomfortable, if he always seems predictable and safe, I wonder if we have a fully informed idea about Jesus, the one that we claim to follow, the one that we claim as both Savior and Lord. And the reason that this is an important thing to wrestle with is because if we're gonna wrestle with the idea of what does it mean to be Christian, what does it mean to be Christian in our culture? What does it mean to be Christian in the culture of polarized politics and tribalism, which basically has created hatred among people and it spews vitriol at people? If we're gonna ask the question, what does it mean to be Jesus? Then we have to have a healthy idea, an accurate idea about Jesus himself. Because being Christian begins and ends with the question of who is Jesus, what was Jesus like, what was the world like that Jesus was a part of, so that we can have a fully informed idea about Jesus. 
Because until we have a fully informed idea about Jesus, we can never truly wrestle with the question or answer the question, what does it mean to be Christian in our current cultural climate? And so that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about Jesus and we've been talking about his table habits. And we've been talking about the fact that Jesus loved to hang out with people who disagreed with him who was different from him. We, we've been talking about the fact that Jesus loved to hang out with people who didn't believe like he did, people that didn't behave like he did. And because of it, it got Jesus quite a reputation. Uh, he was known by the self-righteous Pharisees as being a guy who ate too much and drank too much because he hung out with all the wrong people. And so Jesus, he challenged the status quo of his day. He felt as though that he could initiate change at the table. And so, so much of what we find about Jesus in the Gospels has to do with Jesus gathering around the table. Now, that's not the entirety of Jesus's life, obviously. But once you read through the Gospels, you'll find out that it is a big part. And I think that wrestling with the question of what does it mean to be Christian in our culture really begins with understanding Jesus. And I think that we understand Jesus in some really clear ways by seeing how Jesus conducted himself at the table and who he gathered with at the table. Now, we talk about all the time about how Jesus, he stepped onto the pages of history. And that sounds epic, and it was, and it sounds like this big climactic thing, and it was. But when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history, he was also stepping into a pre-existing narrative. He was stepping into the pre-existing narrative of his people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. So when Jesus showed up on the planet, he stepped into a pre-existing narrative. Now, when you read through the gospels, it's important to know a little bit about this pre-existing narrative if you're actually gonna be able to fully appreciate Jesus. Because the narrative that Jesus stepped into was hyper-political and hyper-religious. Hyper-religious and hyper-political. That was the narrative that Jesus stepped into. We love to think about, you know, the stories of Jesus, you know, the gospels. We love to think about it as once upon a time in a land far, far away that was almost fairy tale, almost mythic, you know, that it was almost like a fable that, that his world is really so different than our world that Jesus is so disconnected from our reality. But that's not the case at all. The world has not really changed in 2000 years since Jesus showed up on the planet. Jesus stepped into a culture that was hyper-political, hyper-partisan, hyper-religious, like our 21st century culture, that when you peel back the onions of our 21st century American culture, and when you go hunting around the globe, you're gonna find that when you peel back the curtain, no matter what the culture is, at the heart of it, at the core of it, you're gonna find that it's political and that it's religious. And oftentimes it's hyper-religious and hyper-political. And when it's hyper-political and hyper-religious, it becomes hyper-partisan, it becomes tribal. And when it becomes tribal, people begin to attack each other and people begin to see one another instead of being part of the same community or the same country, we see people as enemies. We see people as opposition. We see them as the enemy to conquer. And so all of that has a really big play in how that we see the world, how we experience the world. And it certainly did in Jesus's day as well. So let me give you a couple of examples. Shortly before Jesus was born, Blood was being shed in the streets of Jerusalem because there was constant uprising against the inhumane oppression of Rome. Blood was being shed in the streets of Jerusalem all the time. And it all, revol all revolved around politics and religion. Shortly after Jesus was born, 
There was a massacre of baby boys in and around Bethlehem that was ordered by a political figure. And the massacre of baby boys was all about religion and it was all about politics. The man who baptized Jesus, John the baptizer, was executed by a political leader, by a king, because John was a man who told truth to power, and when he told truth to power, the power retaliated and took his head. It was political, it was religious. So when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history, I want you to begin to appreciate Jesus in a brand new way. And if I can do that as your pastor, if I can do that as a communicator, as a preacher, a teacher, I consider that a job done well. If I can get you to appreciate the, 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 the ideas that existed in Jesus's culture, if I can get you to appreciate the culture that Jesus stepped into, how that culture responded to Jesus in order to get you to understand more about who Jesus really was so that you can better ask and answer the question, what does it mean to be like Jesus in our culture? I think that's going to be healthy for me. I think that's going to be healthy for you. It's going to be healthy for all of us. And hopefully it will be something that you'll be able to influence outside the walls of our church. But when Jesus stepped into the narrative that he stepped into, there was the temple on this side and Rome on this side. It was hyper-partisan, it was religious, and it was political. And within that spectrum of tribes, within that spectrum of all of the identity politics that existed then, just like it does now, there were groups in the first century like these. There were more, but these were the main ones. The Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and Rome. The Essenes, you, you may have never heard about them or know anything about them, but they were a priestly class of, of you know, people that, that they really didn't want to hang around the Jewish people at large because the Jews had been Hellenized. That means they were made more like the Greeks. So a lot of the Jews, they felt like had compromised their faith and were acting like Greeks rather than Jews. So they didn't want to be around you know, the populace of Jewish folks and they didn't want to be around the Romans because they were the infidel and they were the oppressors. So they decided they were just going to move to the lake and, and they were going to build places and they were going to live there and they were going to live their faith out in seclusion. So they, they really were in favor of like monastery type faith. They just wanted to be away from culture. They were, they were isolationists. So there were the Essenes and then there were the Zealots and the Zealots were political protesters. Uh, now I've, I've learned through a few conversations uh, this morning and this week that not everyone pays attention to the news. And so it, it may surprise you to know that there have been, you know, a lot of discussions in our culture this week about politics. Apparently there's some big things going on and, and there were some disagreements about the highest court of the land and who should sit there and, and all of the charges and all of the drama that, that has been right there in front of us all day long, all day, every day. And, and I realized that not everybody watches the news and maybe you are the smartest among us. So congratulations if you have no idea what's been going on in the world, but just trust me, it's been bad. And if you've paid attention to the news, there've been protests, there's been a lot of anger, there's been a lot of vitriol, there's been folks holding up signs, there's been folks chanting, there's been folks singing, there've been folks walking the halls of the Senate office building. And you know, and you're either thinking that's a great thing or a terrible thing, but you know, I'm not here to talk about whether it's great or not great, but I want you to understand that what exists in our culture existed in that culture. It was the group known as the Zealots. They were political protesters. They opposed the government. They distrusted trusted the government. They always spoke of the government with distrust and suspicion. Matter of fact, they were also known to be political assassins. And, and during times of feasts, 
Uh, They would often carry out hits, political hits, religious hits inside Jerusalem uh, to kill folks, uh, to wound folks, to carry out acts of violence against folks who seemed to be friendly with Rome or against Rome themselves. Their hopes were to overthrow Rome, to restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel. So, So they were zealots. And even some of Jesus' followers were zealots, political protesters and such. One, his name was Simon. And this is what I love about Jesus and the idea of him being at the table. Jesus invited a zealot by the name of Simon to sit at his table. And not only that, as we talked about in the first week of this series, he invited a tax collector by the name of Matthew to sit at his table. Jesus embraced being in an atmosphere of political diversity. Jesus resisted the temptation that we all feel which is to withdraw to our own kind, to withdraw to people who share our worldview, who share our politics, who share our values, who share our theology. Jesus would hang out with Simon the Zealot who hated the government and he hung out with a guy by the name of Matthew who worked for the government, got rich off the government and he invited both of them to be his followers. It was tense. I imagine that on some nights Jesus had to sleep between Simon and Matthew to make sure that they didn't hurt each other. But Jesus was okay with that type of diversity. That's how he used his table. And he extended dignity to both. And that's what we talked about last week. That Jesus saw every person is created in the image of God. And when we understand that every person is created in the image of God, we are required to extend to every person the love of God. And so there were the, um, you know, the Zealots and the Essenes, and then there were the Sadducees. You've heard of them before in the scriptures. These were the aristocratic priestly class that existed in the first century that Jesus stepped into. They controlled the temple, and to control the temple meant that you were wealthy, you were powerful. Jews from all over the world would send a temple tax to Jerusalem to keep the temple running. And the Sadducees controlled the temple. That means they controlled literally what is the equivalent of billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in first century Jerusalem. The Sadducees were rich and they were powerful because those two things often travel together. They were rich and they were powerful. Now, something else about the Sadducees. Not only were they in control of the temple, but they were in control of the Supreme Court of their day. The Jewish Supreme Court had 71 members on it, and the Sadducees held most of those seats. They allowed the Pharisees to have a few and maybe a couple of other groups to share one or two seats, but the Sadducees always made sure that the court leaned in their direction. So they controlled the temple and they controlled the justice system. That is power. So they were powerful and they were wealthy. And not only that, but the Sadducees were responsible for wheeling and dealing with Rome. They willed and dealed with Rome behind closed doors. Now, publicly and politically, to save face, they would tell the Jewish people, we don't like the infidels, we don't like Rome. But behind closed doors, Rome was their friend because Rome allowed them to do whatever basically they wanted to do. As long as the Sadducees would keep the zealots calm and make sure that no one tried an overthrow of the government, Rome allowed the Sadducees to continue to maintain their wealth and to maintain their power. So there were the Sadducees. Then you had the Pharisees who were the religious obsessives, uh, always going around checking about, you know, if you're keeping the law, you're breaking the law, you're keeping the law, you're breaking the law. They were self-righteous. They were just fixated. It was almost like religion became their narcotic. It's it's how they treated themselves in, in a very unpleasant place at a very unpleasant time to live. So they were treated to religion as kind of their... They're fixed. 
That's, that's, how they, that's how they faced the world. That, that was the Pharisees. And then you had Rome, the most powerful nation in the history of the world. And, and that was basically the major tribes when Jesus showed up. There were others, but, but those were the major ones. Jesus showed up, and he's over here. And for some reason, Jesus doesn't fit in their five-party system. Jesus doesn't seem to fit in their four-party system or their three-party system or their two-party system. Jesus doesn't seem to fit into anybody's party because Jesus seems to be a party in and of himself. And it frustrated the power brokers of his day. It frustrated the structures of power, the hierarchies of power in his day because Jesus showed up and he refused to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. He didn't fit in with the Essenes or the Zealots or the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or with Rome. It was almost like he was the lone man standing. He refused to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. And if we pay attention to history and if we pay attention to our culture, the kingdoms of this world have a rule book. They play by the same rules. They always have. They still do. They always will. Within the rules of the kingdoms of this world, there are hierarchies of power. There are hierarchies of identity, hierarchies of race and geography and economy. It's always been this way. It is this way today. And it will continue to be this way as it relates to the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus refused to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. He refused to separate politics from theology or theology from politics. Jesus understood that at the heart of the problem was a problem with God. That if men and women could right their wrong relationship with God, then the consequence of that, other things would be made right as a result of making the most important thing right. Jesus didn't show up to offer political solutions to the world because he knew that solutions to world's greatest needs and problems would never be found in politics. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem was sin. Our greatest problem will always be sin. And Jesus said, I have come to offer you a solution for your greatest problem to help you be right with your creator, your heavenly father. And when you make that right, everything else begins to fall into place and can be made right. So Jesus showed up and they all considered Jesus a threat and to which we should ask, why? Because what I'm trying to get you to do is to give you a brand new set of eyes and a brand new set of ears in how you read the New Testament, specifically the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to help you see Jesus in a way perhaps that you've never seen Jesus. Because if I ask you, before I got started today, was Jesus a political figure? Some of you would say yes and some of you would say no. And it's a testament to Jesus ultimately, most of the time ends up being who we want him to be. Most of the time we see Jesus as we want him to be instead of how he actually was. Jesus didn't fit in. And there was a reason why. Jesus was offensive to all of these groups and there was a reason why. It was simple, but yet profound. It was messy, complicated, frustrating, but yet so very simple. It was his message. It was his message of love. Now, some of you are thinking, can we talk about something else other than love? And I would say to you, what I think Jesus would say to all of us, we'll stop talking about it when you get it right. Jesus said that in the kingdom of God, because Jesus came 
onto the pages of history, stepped into a pre-existing narrative. He refused to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. And he began to promote a kingdom that was not of this world. He proclaimed that a kingdom existed that was not of this world and he was the king of that kingdom. And as Jesus talked about this kingdom that was not of this world, he said there is one law in this kingdom and it is the most important thing in the kingdom of God. And he said it was love. It is the great commandment to love your neighbor as Jesus has loved you. It is what Jesus' half-brother James refers to as the royal law of the kingdom. That inside the kingdom of God, this kingdom that is not of this world, that refuses to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. Inside the kingdom of God, the most important thing is the only law of the land. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And for some reason then, and for some reason now, the message of Jesus to love one another as he has loved us is still so very threatening to those who claim to follow him. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're gonna get to hear me talk to Christians about how we're supposed to act and how oftentimes we act in light of how we're supposed to act. And so you just get to sit there and I'm gonna try to say some of the things you've probably thought and I hope you come back next week and the week after that because we've got a few more weeks of this series and I think it's just gonna get gooder and gooder, all right? And, and so I know that wasn't correct. Better and better, all right? Does that make you feel better? Better, some of you can breathe now. Put your nerve pill back in your pocket. It's okay, you don't need it. Take a breather, all right? So we're talking about how Jesus, here, here he is, he proclaims this kingdom that is not of this world. And in doing so, he frustrates all the people who play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. And that's what's so very intriguing about the real Jesus. Because when it came to the kingdoms of this world, Jesus sided with himself. Jesus sided with himself. And they, being the power brokers, the power structures, the hierarchies of power in his day, social hierarchies, political hierarchies, racial hierarchies, economy hierarchies, all of it, they didn't like it because it felt as though it was a threat, and it was. Jesus stepped into the narrative of his culture, and simply by sharing a table with people that he was not supposed to share a table with, to which we should say, we should say time out. Why was he not supposed to share a table with them? Because of the religious hierarchies, the social hierarchies, the racial hierarchies, the economical hierarchies of his day, which dictated who you could be with. Jesus turned all that stuff upside down. And because of it, it became a threat to both the temple and to the empire. The temple was threatened because the temple only knew how to operate as religion does. Religion can only operate within the context of hierarchy. And most of the time it is an unhealthy, ungodly, unscriptural hierarchy. But that's how religion thrives. That's how religion oppresses. That's how religion manipulates. That's how religion controls is through hierarchy valuing some people over others. Some people have greater access to God, know more about God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because of it, they willed the power over everyone else. The temple was threatened by all of this. And then the empire was threatened by it because Jesus is talking about a kingdom that is not of this world. And they're talking about Jesus like he's a king. And to speak of another person other than Tiberius as being king was an insult 
and treason against Caesar. So Jesus managed to not fit in to anybody's party. Jesus was a party in and of himself. Jesus didn't fit into any of the kingdoms of this world because he was establishing a kingdom that was not of this world. So when you read the gospels, you need to understand that Jesus' death was initiated by political and religious authorities who felt Jesus was a threat to their political and religious structures. That's the gospel. That's how our savior died. That's why he died. Political and religious power brokers put Jesus to death because he was a threat to their political and religious structures. And threats must be dealt with. That's how it works in the kingdoms of this world. Jesus was an enemy to be eliminated. That's how it works in the kingdoms of this world. It is the power, it's the politics of power. That's the kingdoms of this world. The end justifies the means. That's the rules of the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus started changing things just because he sat down at a table. He sat down at a table and he laughed. <laughs> I don't think that's how Jesus laughed. I just threw it in there. Jesus laughed and he listened. He had good food, he had good drink. And he hung out with people in the greatest empire and the largest empire in the history of the world took notice. Jesus hung out at tables with people in the temple, the epicenter of Jewish faith, a faith over 1,500 years old took notice because a man sat at a table. Jesus, I can imagine, he sat at a table and he talked to them about this kingdom that was not of this world. He talked to them about how in this new kingdom, now just imagine this as you read through the gospels and you know that Jesus had these conversations over and over and over again. That as Jesus sat at the table and he talked to these people and he said, let me tell you about this kingdom that is not of this world. Let me tell you about the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the last is gonna be made first. Do you know who that is threatening to? All the people who are first. Jesus said, let me tell you about the kingdoms of this world. The first stay first and the last stay last. But in my kingdom, those at the end of the line come to the front of the line. Those who are low are brought high and those who are high are cast low. Jesus said, in my kingdom, there's a brand new set of values. He said, in my kingdom, it's blessed to be poor in spirit because you'll inherit the kingdom of God. In my kingdom, it is blessed for you to show mercy because you will inherit mercy. In this kingdom that is not of this world, if those Roman soldiers ask you to go one mile, like the law says, they can. In this kingdom, you should go too. In this kingdom that is not of this world, you're gonna remove the word enemy from your vocabulary. Because even your enemy is a person you bless and you pray for and you love. In the kingdom of God, if they slap you on your left cheek, go ahead and turn and give them your right cheek. <laughs> Jesus told about the kingdom of God 
And people leaned in and people listened. And everything that had been used to oppress people, everything that had been used to devalue people was being systematically dismantled by this message of Jesus. And it threatened everybody. And then Jesus said, if you wanna follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And then he sent his followers out into the kingdoms of this world to promote a kingdom that was not of this world. And since that time, and since that moment, when Jesus sent the first followers out, every generation of Jesus followers have been wrestling with what it means to be a part of a kingdom that is not of this world as we try to operate in a world that is dominated by the kingdoms of this world. What does it mean in our generation to go forth, to go forward as Jesus' followers, as Jesus would himself, as Jesus did himself? What does it look like? What does it mean? What does it sound like to go out into culture and be counter-cultural as the kingdom of God is, as it always has been? And there we have the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament after the four gospels is helping us wrestle with the question of what it means to be Christian, to be part of a kingdom that is not of this world as we operate on a planet that is dominated by the kingdoms of this world. That's why Peter and John, that's why all the New Testament writers, they write about Christian ethic, they write about Christian behavior, they write about how we are to interact with one another, how we are to engage the culture, because that is at the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. That we must understand how to engage the culture, to interact with one another, if we are going to be a part of this kingdom that is not of this world, to promote it to people who are enslaved to, captured by the kingdoms of this world. I think nobody wrote about this in a practical sense more than the Apostle Paul. Paul writes to us about what it means to get this table thing right. What it means to operate by the law of the kingdom, to love that it's the greatest command, it's the royal law, it is the way of Jesus' followers. It is the reputation that we are supposed to have among one another and the reputation that we're supposed to have among those outside the faith. Jesus said, when you love one another, they will know you are my disciples. So this, is, should, this should be, this is supposed to be our reputation. And the table is a place that we get to really flesh this out. We get to flex our love muscles and we get to try to be Jesus in a way that perhaps will move the needle of change in our culture, in our communities, in our families, within our tribes as we penetrate outside of our tribes and we cross the aisle to those different from us in disagreement with us. This is what Paul said about this whole idea that I've just talked about. He says, since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. The implication being you decided to follow Jesus and things began to change. We're introduced to that idea all throughout the New Testament. When you decide to follow Jesus, things begin to change. For some it may be faster than others, others it may happen slower. But when you follow Jesus, things begin to change. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, 
Set your hearts. Everybody say hearts. Set your hearts on things above. Set your heart, your affections on this kingdom and this king that is not of this world. Set your affections, your values, how you feel about people. Set your heart based on this kingdom above. Set your minds, the way that you think, on things above, not on earthly things. He says, listen, it's super easy as you're here on this planet, dominated by the kingdoms of this world, to begin to feel like those that are part of the kingdoms of this world and to think like those who are trapped within the kingdoms of this world. He says, if you follow Jesus, you need to set your heart outside of that, above that. You need to set your thinking above that. You're not who you used to be. You're to learn your new ways, your new values, your new approaches from Jesus himself. And beyond this, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about identity. We live in a culture that is obsessed with identity. How do you identify yourself? Identify this, identify that. You're identified by party, you're identified by gender, you're identified by this community, you're identified by that community. Identity, we're so obsessed with identity. How do we represent ourselves? How do we communicate ourselves? Who are we on this big planet of ours with all these seven billion people? Who are we? What's our identity? And here's what Paul said. Paul said, if you're a follower of Jesus, your greatest and ultimate identity is defined in your relationship with your heavenly father. You are a son or a daughter of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is the identity which transcends all others. That means you're a follower of Jesus before you're a Republican. You're a follower of Jesus before you're a Democrat. You're a follower of Jesus before you're a Libertarian. You're a follower of Jesus before you're an American. You're a follower of Jesus first. You're a member of his kingdom first. You're a citizen of his kingdom first. And when you embrace that identity, that begins to change the way you feel and the way that you think. That's the reason Jesus said, seek first, whose kingdom? Seek first God's kingdom. Make it the most important thing because it will make the most important difference. So Paul goes on and he says, okay, with all that in mind, but now because you follow Jesus and things are changing, you gotta rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Now, he says, these things are not compatible with a follower of Jesus. These things are completely compatible within our two-party system in America. These things are completely compatible within the rules of the kingdoms of this world. These things are completely acceptable within the hierarchical structures of politics and power and race and economics. But Paul says these things are not compatible with a follower of Jesus Christ. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy. We're so used to that. That's common even for Christians. And here's Paul's point. You're going to get this love thing right. And you're going to bring people to your table that disagree with you, look different than you. You better chuck that stuff at the door before you ever sit down. Because what's going to happen is somebody's going to open up their mouth and they're going to share their opinion that's not popular with you. It's not going to sit well with you. And the next thing you're going to know, your blood pressure is going to start to rise. That little vein in the side of your head is going to start bulging. And everybody knows when you start getting that bulging vein in the side of your head, it's only a matter of moments till your mouth opens and it's not going to be pretty. He says anger. That's not the way of Christians. 
That's the way of politics. That's the way of kingdoms. That's the way of nations. That's the way of tribes. It's the way of nations. It is not the way of the kingdom of God. He says, so put away anger and rage and put away malice. You know what malice is? Hoping harm will come to those who are across the aisle, across the ideological spectrum, in a different theological camp, in a different community, in a different nation, wishing them harm, wishing them harm. I've heard Christians before say, I wish some of those politicians would just drop dead. And of course, there wasn't anyone in their party. Doesn't that just sound just like Jesus? How many times did Jesus talk about how he wished that Tiberius would die a cruel and unpleasant death? Oh, that's right. He didn't. Because his kingdom was not of this world. He says, you gotta put away anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, offensive language, put it away. There's no place for that at the table. If you want good table manners, you gotta leave that stuff at the door. If you wanna have a conversation, you gotta leave that stuff at the door. You can't get angry every time somebody disagrees with you. What's that all about? Where's that coming from? You should pay attention to what angers you and who angers you. I should pay attention to that. Why so angry? Where's the rage coming from? When we look at our culture and we see people angry, we see people enraged, we see people speaking malice, we see people slandering one another, speaking filthy language about each other. You know what we ought to know immediately? There is a hurt somewhere deep below all of that. A hurt that only the grace of God can heal. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you have received the grace of God, listen, you have received grace to deal with that. So get it aside, put it in the trunk, get it away from the table because you can't have a conversation with that type of stuff going on. And then he goes on, he says, okay, now here's what you should do as God's chosen people, part of this kingdom, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He said that is the, step, the steps of Jesus. That's being in lockstep with Jesus. That is completely compatible with Jesus because that is Jesus. That's how Jesus was, compassion. Jesus, Jesus got people close enough to him, so close it was hard to hate. It's easy to hate from a distance. It's easy to hate across Facebook and across Twitter. It's even easy to hate across the political aisle now in our country. It's easy to hate one community from another community. One color of skin to another color of skin. But Jesus brought those different so close, it was so close, hate could not exist in between. Compassion that says, I feel, I feel for you. I feel as you, I feel with you. I'm with you in that. I understand how you feel. I understand. This is, this is compassion that comes from, I've heard your story. And when I hear where you came from, I know how to connect with where you are. I hear your story, I, I have compassion. My heart is set towards you. He says, this is the way you do it. This is how you have the conversation. Kindness, oh, that's just grace. 
That's being soft around the edges. It's not being harsh and abrasive. I, I just love Christians who, who love to say from time to time, well, I'm just one of those who like to tell it the way it is. That's me. If you don't like it, just, you, don't, you don't have to be around me. That's why there's nobody who likes to be around you. I just like to tell it the way it is. Incompatible with Jesus. I'm just a truth teller. You know me, I'm just a truth teller. You know, you did that series one time. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. That's who I am. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. Incompatible with Jesus. Do you think Jesus said everything he thought? No. Do you think you should? No. Should I? No. Humility. You know what proud people do? They point their finger at each other. Well, I'll tell you what, you and it's you people and it's, that's the problem with the world and that's the reason it's going to hell in a handbasket. Them over there, that's what proud people do. You know what humble people do? Humble people know they're already so broken, they don't have any high ground to point their finger at anybody else. What if your most secret sin was made public that no one knows about? No one will ever know about it. What if your browsing history on your iPhone or your computer was made public? What if your text messages were all made public? What if your most private conversations with yourself or with someone else about other people were all made public? How hard would it be to take moral high ground then? How hard would it be to be self-righteous then? How hard would it be to point our finger at anyone knowing who we really are? We are just sinners saved by grace. How can we be anything but humble, gentle, patient? And then he wraps it all up and this is where we're gonna pick it up. We're gonna come back to this passage in two weeks. So don't miss it. He says, be wise, be wise, and all of this in mind, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. There's a reason why we act the way that we should act because faith is at stake. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He says, listen, the way you behave at the table with people is really indicative of how you just are with people in general. Do you know that in our country, 44% of people say that Christians get on their nerves? I think I am part of the 44% that actually would say, perhaps you are part of the 44%. We have an image problem in this country, the church, Christians. The way that unchristians think about us, some of it's undeserved, but some of it, it is deserved. And Paul says, and Jesus says, and the New Testament says, and the gospels all agree that it matters what those outside the faith think about us. So we gotta get this table thing right because when non-believers see us able to sit with believers and unbelievers who are different than we are, disagree and still love and accept and extend compassion and kindness and respect and dignity, it does something in the heart of non-believers. They take notice of that. And the point is that how we behave can make what we believe more believable. The inverse is true as well. And then he ends it here. He says, so let your conversation 
Be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer every person. He says, when you sit with people at the table, grace is the main spread. It is a banquet of grace. And some of you have been worried. Yeah, that's all we talk about is love, but we never talk about the truth. They need the truth too. They need the truth. Honey, it's the truth that'll set you free. Well, Paul said, it needs to be a banquet of grace with just a little bit of salt. Just a little. Just a little bit of salt make all the difference. Most of us grew up in a Christian culture that said, give them the salt. <laughs> give them the salt, bless God, and we'll sprinkle a little bit of grace. A banquet of grace with a little bit of salt. So here are the rules for the table. You can take these, use them until we revisit this text again. Here's the rules for the table. Here's your table manners. Don't insult. You can't insult and influence at the same time. Can't do it. It's incompatible with the Jesus, don't insult. Ask questions. Just sit there and ask questions of people. Get to know them, understand them. The better you know them, you can go back. The better you know them, the better you can love them. If you don't know them, how, how can you love them? Be gracious. Jesus never gives his followers the right to be ungracious towards anyone. And then be winsome. The person behind the issue is always more important than the position you have about the issue. Whatever the issue is. Let your love be winsome, be compelling, be magnetic, be skillful in the way that you love. Love in such an attractive way that people want to sit at your table. Even those different from you want to talk to you about the differences because of the way that you look at them, the dignity that you extend to them, the love and the grace that you freely extend. Heavenly Father, God, help us to get this right. Holy Spirit, take this message. Take these words. Apply it to our hearts. Let us leave behind what we need to leave behind and let us lay hold of the thing that we dare not need to let go of. God, remind us that we are not God the Father whose job it is to judge. Remind us that we're not God the Holy Spirit whose job it is to convict. And we are not Jesus, whose job it is to change lives. We are followers of the King, members of a kingdom that is not of this world. And our job is to love, to provide grace, full and free, with a little bit of salt sprinkled on top. Lord, help us to get this right, in Jesus' name.